I there. Um, just open your Bibles to page 1039, and it's Luke 9, and it's starting from 51, verse 51. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent on messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, will I follow you wherever you go? Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Thanks, Glennis. Good morning, everyone. What a wonderful day to be in church. Let me also get us to welcome Neville and Kathy Naden, who are here today. Welcome, Kathy and Neville. They are the ones who, well, Neville particularly, who organised for the Brownleys to be here. And what a joy it is to have the Brownleys. I got to hear them over in Port Augusta when I spoke at the AEF conference over the new year. And when I heard they could come, I was delighted. So it's great to have you guys here. Um, as we have probably picked up, there is an Indigenous theme about today, and I've called today the Indigenous Voice of the Gospel. Uh, not the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Uh, I have written some stuff in my weekly email. Uh, all I do want to say is that people give a generous consideration to voting yes, uh, as the Synod has said and particularly as our Indigenous brothers and sisters at Synod have said to us, that is what they're asking, and so I do ask that of us. But um, it is great to be here today, and I do want to give you an update, uh, because last time I spoke, uh, or 
was hosting an Indigenous service was back in NAIDOC week and we were raising money uh, off the back of the acknowledgement of art, uh, acknowledgement of country artwork that Max Conlon produced and Max preached and we heard on that day that um, you could buy prints and people also gave money towards a caravan for the AUF ministry and I'm very pleased to let you know uh, that they have just bought the caravan and we didn't raise $25,000, we raised over $50,000. Uh, and as someone said, the caravan on the screen I showed in July, they said, that is not suitable for the top end. So they've got a caravan which is four-wheel drive suitable. Uh, it will hold together up in the Kimberleys and all the way across the top end. And they purchased that just two weeks ago. And uh, what a joy. And so if you've been a part of that in terms of giving or buying artwork, fantastic. If you haven't picked your artwork up, do come and see me after the service. They're all ready over in the office. But uh, with that said, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you we can be here today on this wonderful celebration of Indigenous ministry. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, we pray. Amen. Let me start with a question, um, very simple one. Who inspires you as a Christian? Who inspires you? I think it's very important that we have role models, uh, people that we're close to who are going before us that we're learning from in terms of the Christian faith. And it's a wonderful thing to have men and women who are examples to us. And when you read through the New Testament, one of the striking words on this theme is from the Apostle Paul. And he said to the Corinthian church, follow my example as I follow Christ. And what you see there is there is a real need to have people that we are following in the footsteps who are leading us forward in the Christian faith. And what I want to do today is help us to see that our Indigenous brothers and sisters are models for us of the Christian faith and of ministry of the Gospel. And they are an inspiration to me. And so today is a tribute to all the Indigenous brothers and sisters that I've met with who inspire me, because they do. Because what struck me over the past 12 years as we have partnered with Indigenous ministries is how committed they are to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ and the urgency they have to proclaim the Gospel. And Neville got up and spoke this year at Synod and it was a joy to see him up there speaking and his great word was, I don't want to speak about the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, I want to speak about Biblical Reconciliation because it's the Gospel that our people need. And it was a great joy and he was given a standing, not a standing, but a very warm ovation at the end of it. And I've picked out a passage for me which speaks so profoundly, I think, of the heart that I've seen in Indigenous Gospel ministry. Uh, and it's Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 62. If you've got your Bibles there or devices, uh, do open with me. Uh, we are at Luke 9, 51 to 62. And there's three things at this pivotal passage that I want us to see, the number one priority of Jesus, the number one challenge of Jesus, and the number one instruction of Jesus. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context for the passage. This is the turning point in Luke's Gospel. Up until this point, we've basically discovered who Jesus is. You've got the extended uh, first two chapters of Jesus' infancy and His birth. Uh, there's prophetic voices that come to announce that this is the one that was chosen by God, predicted by Him, who would be the Messiah. You've got historical data in there that anchors the birth of Christ within Roman history. 
his genealogy, and then you see his baptism and the beginning of his public works, which demonstrated that he really was from God as God's son, and he was the hoped for Messiah. His miracles, his teaching, his exorcisms, they all pointed to his identity as God's son. And then things turn at this passage. Let me put up on the screen the first verse, chapter 9, verse 51. Because what happens is the ministry, in a sense, that has been going on so powerfully, now changes. At this time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And what you see here is this, if I can say, geographic switch. He's been up in Galilee ministering, but he now turns to literally face Jerusalem and I love that phrase, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven and it has the echoes of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension all wrapped up in that little phrase. But there's a word there in our translation, resolutely, which in the original language is actually two words and it literally means that he set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. And you can almost see he's been looking all around, ministering to the crowds, but now his focus is narrowed in on the destiny that is before him, his mission, which is to go to the great city of God and die on the cross for the sins of the people before he is resurrected and taken up to heaven in his ascension. Jesus knew from the very beginning of his ministry that it would end on a Roman cross. That is why he came. And he came to die there for the sins of the world. And at this point in the narrative, he now makes that journey with a sense of resolute determination that he is now going to fulfill his mission. We read in verse 52, and he sent messages ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. And so... He could have gone the normal way, he's up in Galilee and typically the Jewish people would not travel through Samaritan country, which was literally the direct route down to Jerusalem. They would go around but because of his urgency and focus, Jesus literally walks straight through Samaria and he sends messages ahead into the village to get things ready for him. We don't quite know what it is, maybe it was to stay overnight but the interesting response is this, verse 33... But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And it was very obvious that he was not there to minister to them, but rather he was passing through them to go to the great city. Now, it is worth noting that though the Jewish people had enormous disdain for the Samaritans, Jesus only ever showed love for them. And all of his interactions were positive and caring as he ministered to them the love of God. But the Samaritans pick up something has changed and that he is not there for them, but he's heading for the city of Jerusalem. And they didn't welcome him. And you see this response in verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And I can just picture Jesus pulling his hair out. <laughs> Think, guys, have you not learned anything? <laughs> I actually love the whole world. <laughs> and they're wanting to call fire down. 
And verse 55, Jesus turns and rebukes them. Like, and you can just hear him thinking to himself, I'm about to go and die for the sins of these people. I don't want to have them destroyed. <laughs> and then he, is this, he and his disciples went to another village. And at that village, we have three interactions that take place. And now as Jesus is set in motion to go to the cross, he starts to define what it means to be his follower. And three separate discussions take place about what it means to be a disciple or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see here is as he goes to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world, we learn what it means to follow him. And here we see the number one challenge of Jesus. Let's have a look at the first interaction, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever I go. And no doubt this man has seen Jesus' ministry, he's been impressed by him. And probably like numbers of people in that day thought, I'm going to attach myself to this teacher, this rabbi. There seems something very impressive about him. And that was a normal thing that took place. But Jesus is not just some normal rabbi. He replies, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus is effectively saying to the man, I'm a homeless guy. Do you realise that? Foxes, birds, they've got homes, I don't. And what we see here is the challenge to the would-be disciple was that if you want to follow the Lord Jesus, it involves giving up your worldly and materialistic ideals. That's effectively what he's saying to him. It is to live rejected. It is to follow someone who had no earthly home. It is to trust God and know that our true home is in heaven which is where he was heading, and not here on earth. I didn't know that the Brownies were going to sing that beautiful song about we're just passing through. And that is so true and so apt in light of this passage. He then talks to a second prospective follower. And this time Jesus talks to him. And he said to him, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, it is worth noting that that does seem to be a reasonable excuse. <laughs> and you would think any compassionate person would think, yeah, okay, he's got to bury his dad, fair enough. When you finish, you can come. But that's not the response you get. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And there's something very stark and abrupt about what Jesus replies here and it does seem out of context in terms of the need for compassion what's not clear from the text is whether the father that is spoken of is dead or is near death and it is possible that the would-be disciple is asking to actually just take care of his parents in their old age which was an important part of honoring them in accordance with the law and it's also worth noting that in the Old Testament law, an unburied body was a mark of disgrace and the burial of one's father or mother was an important part of honouring them according to the Jewish law. And so, was he dead? Well, the likelihood is actually he was not dead and not near death. Let me quote to you from a Middle Eastern scholar, Kenneth Bailey. He's worked researching the Gospels for 40 years living in the Middle East. 
and is one of the greatest scholars in terms of understanding Jewish culture. And he says that to bury my father really means to stay at home until his father is dead and buried. And if a son asks permission to leave home prior to the father's death, the father is likely to interpret that as a desire that the father would die. And to this man, Jesus says, actually, there's something more urgent that you need to do. It's to follow me. And so the phrase, let the dead bury the dead, seems to indicate that he was speaking in a metaphorical or figurative way. And he's saying, I am the more urgent thing. And following me should be your number one priority. And what we learn here is, if in the first instance, discipleship means that our home is in heaven and we're just passing through... Well, secondly, we learn that there's an unconditional nature of the urgent call to follow Jesus. Don't let anything stop you following the Lord Jesus and proclaiming His kingdom. And then there's the third guy. There's always the third guy, that extra one who is a sucker for punishment. (laughs) And you'd think, having seen what happened to the first two guys, he'd kind of put his hand down. But no, he's just a bit brave and probably a bit stupid and he puts his hand up. There's always that guy. And he basically says this, still another one said, look, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And he thinks, well, that's a reasonable request. I'm not just going to loiter and stay there for a while, I'm just going to say goodbye. Verse 62, Jesus replied, well, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Again, this abrupt response and he's using a metaphor from farming and he's saying here that the farmer would never turn back when plowing the field and that's how farmers operated they wouldn't look back because then they would lose track of where they're going and so they would have their eyes focused ahead and so what we see here in this third interaction is that we are to look straight ahead we are not to look back as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus in the work of the gospel and this is the challenge of Jesus to his disciples we are to see heaven as our home nothing is to get in the way of us following him here on earth and we are to look straight ahead and not turn back that's what a follower of Christ looks like and so if the number one priority of Jesus was to go and die for our sins If the number one challenge of Jesus to us is to give up all and follow him unconditionally, let's think about the number one instruction. Because twice, to two of the disciples, he gives a command. Verse 60, he said to the man, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then in the last person, he says... No one who makes themselves must make themselves fit for service in the kingdom of God. And you see here the twin focus in terms of what he wants us to do. He wants us to be serving in the kingdom and proclaiming the gospel in the kingdom. That's what we're called to do. And it's worth noting this is not a word to the 12 disciples, it's a word to anyone who would come after the Lord Jesus. We are to be people who are caught up in the service of the King, in the Kingdom and proclaiming the King. That's what we're called to do. 
I want to stop now and get us to think about that in relation to what inspires me in this regard. Because my interactions with Indigenous people who are Christians is that this is absolutely what defines them. They are sold out, they are not turning back and they are wanting to see the Kingdom advance and the Gospel proclaimed. I mentioned about the caravan that we've raised the money for and again thank you for those who've been involved. Um, the reason we bought that caravan is because of these two people, Dennis and Valda Taylor. Now, Dennis and Valda have been pastoring for over 30 years. They're from Western Australia, they've also ministered in Victoria. And they are the ones who worked out that in terms of training Indigenous leadership, there's a big gap between taking people from the top end in the remote communities and bringing them down to the cities. Uh, there's enormous cultural struggles that take place and often it doesn't end well. And so, as a first step, they thought we need to go to where they are, where their brothers and sisters are in the country. And so, at age of 62, when many would be thinking about retiring and travelling overseas, what is Dennis and Valda doing? They're thinking about living in a caravan in the stinking hot heat of the top of Australia. And if you saw the video, it was 47, was it? 43 degrees? months on a time to take the gospel to their indigenous brothers and sisters up in the top end and I'm just inspired by them that's their commitment to Christ their resting place will be in heaven but they just see there's work to do and so I'm just so delighted that we can be the church that is providing the vehicle for them to go and live in, up in the top end so that they can travel and they've got invitations from the Kimberleys uh, and from other regions up uh, in the top end. Uh, one of the other pastors in hearing about this wants to go up into Central Australia, up from Port Augusta and it is wonderful and it's inspiring and I think praise the Lord for the way they want to serve in the Kingdom and proclaim the Gospel. Let me tell you about a second person who inspires me. That face may be familiar to everyone here. I'll explain why shortly. The name of the person is David Unipan. He was born in 1872. His father, James, was the first adult Aboriginal Christian in the Point Maclay Mission near the mouth of the Murray River in South Australia. And it was in this household that David was raised. In Australia, David is best known to Australians because in 1992, he became the first Indigenous person to be on the Australian currency with his face on the $50 bill. Growing up, David was a prodigious reader as a child. He grew up to be a remarkably intelligent and learned man with academic interests. He was self-educated. He was a natural scientist. He has patented many scientific and technical inventions. Uh, in his old age, he thought he had discovered the invention for perpetual motion. Incredible brain. He also read the classics and could quote huge slabs of Bunyan and Milton. Newspapers in Australia of the day dubbed him the black genius and Australia's Leonardo. And like his father, David was also a very keen Christian. He had an immense knowledge of the Bible and knew huge sections of it off by heart. 
David became quite famous in his time and was regularly sought after as a speaker in the southern states. He was also a political activist in his own eccentric way, becoming a kind of unofficial spokesperson for what he termed Aboriginal advancement. But with all his talents and interests, what is not as widely known by secular Australia and the Australians who've written up his story in the secular historical books of the country is that David's greatest love was not science, it was not Bunyan, it was preaching the gospel. He had been a Christian all his life and David Unipin was someone who listened to the Word of God, let it soak deeply into his soul and that Word of the Lord bore great fruit in his life. He became a vigorous, outgoing preacher who modelled himself on the forceful, Bible-based style of the missionary preachers that he had been influenced by. And with Aboriginal people, he preached in the Nugganditjeri language, but elsewhere he preached in English. Did I get it right? Nunungiddi. And to the white folk, he would preach in English. In a Christian sense, David's greatest contribution was in his old age, because he kept going right to the end. The weeds of life and the devil's distractions never took hold of him. What do you think you'll be doing at the age of 80? <laughs> I'm just looking at someone who I know is turned 80, Bruce Baird. By the time he was about 80, younger Aboriginal people were campaigning for Aboriginal rights and he was less courted by the influential and by the media. And so he dedicated his final years to evangelism and he travelled widely, walking on foot to Adelaide and country towns of South Australia to just go and preach the gospel till his dying days. Amen? He's an inspiration. His retirement was where? In heaven. That's where he was travelling. So inspired by him. I'll give you one last modern day example and it's from Peter's trip up to the top end. Peter wrote some notes to me that I could use in the message. And he told me that one of the highlights for him on the trip to Darwin was listening to the local women teach the Bible that you saw on the screen and speak of their love for Jesus. For those who are online watching, apologies we couldn't show the video, but because of child protection issues, we didn't want to uh, and weren't able to broadcast that. But amid the many challenges these women are facing, they are deeply passionate to share the love of Jesus with people in their communities, which is why many of them travelled, as we saw on the video, over 12 hours on a bus to attend a couple of days of Bible training that Naomi was running. And Peter had a wonderful conversation with one of the aunties who shared that her grandmother first told her about Jesus when she was a little girl. They sat in the bush together up in the top end and looked at the night sky and her grandmother told her about the God who loved her and had made everything and had died for her so that she could be part of God's family. And since that night, she has held on to the love of God and now her legacy is similar to that of her late grandmother. She lives to share about the Lord Jesus in the top end and regularly travels with other women to remote communities all over the region to speak about the love of Jesus and Peter told her you're an evangelist, praise God and he said she just sat back and smiled. 
And her story is not dissimilar to the story of many other women who go about quietly doing the business of the Lord in the top end, often travelling long distances to other communities to share the gospel news about the Lord Jesus. Friends, this is the Indigenous voice of the gospel. And it is alive and well in our country. Because brothers and sisters, Indigenous are taking up the cross and following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom as their number one priority and it's going on throughout the land. And I just want to say praise God for that and what an inspiration it is to me and I hope it is to you. And so let us hear those words of the Lord Jesus that finished his challenge to all would-be disciples. No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be here today and to receive ministry from our Indigenous brothers and sisters in the Lord. We thank you for the inspiration they are for us and their focus and love for the gospel and for it to be proclaimed. May you be their blessing, their strength, their guidance and their protection as they seek to take the name of Jesus to their people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I get you to welcome back the Brownleys and the band? And they're going to do one more song. And then we're going to sing together.